let's read from Mark 4, 1 through 25. This will be in the ESV if you want to follow along. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and in yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, has, to you has been given the secret of kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root with themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, as a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Scott. I had Scott read because he didn't think he'd read enough of the word up to this point, so I was decided to, to have him go through it. Um, well, hey, so some of the things that we've observed here as we've been going through the book of Mark so far is that the heart of Jesus uh, is our hearts. That is Jesus' heart. It's our hearts. He came to earth, uh, and one of his aims, one of the things that he came to earth to do very specifically as we're seeing uh, some of the movements that he makes with the people that he comes in contact with, one of the things he came to earth to save us from is our self-righteousness, Right? Because one of the things that, that's, that's, uh, that's noticeable about human beings, right, is that we, we prize health and we prize prosperity and we pride ourselves um, in keeping rules and in living moral lives. And all of that, what that does is it builds this sense of self-righteousness in us. Then Jesus literally comes to the earth and he says, no. Jesus literally comes down and he says, no. He says, that is the path to death he says, if you don't look to me first for life. In fact, Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, he said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, abundant life. 
Um, so today what we're going to do is we're going to explore the parable of the sower, which is the name of the, of the parable that, that uh, was just read to us. And by God's grace, we're going to see how this abundant life that Jesus came to provide for us, how it unfolds and how it grows like a tiny seed in the hearts of those God has prepared to receive it. Now, man, I grew up in an era where, uh, you know, churches did these things where they put on these Christian concerts. And this is back in the 70s and the 80s because, you know, the, the whites should give that all away right now, you know. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not here trying to do a Kris Kringle thing. I'm just getting older and everything's turning white. But I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And it was an era where, where churches put on Christian concerts. And at the end, they would do these things called altar calls for those who wanted to come forward while the band is, like, you know, kind of turning down the volume and playing a little more slowly. And for, they would invite people forward to give their hearts uh, to Jesus. And what happened was I, you know, in the course of all these years of kind of going through this, I literally witnessed, like, thousands of professions of faith. I mean, I had friends who were responsible for dozens of them each, right? Because they would regularly walk down the aisle and make another profession, you know, if the old one didn't seem like it was working, you know, that particular night. And so what was interesting was a couple of weeks ago I had a conversation uh, with my old youth pastor uh, from that time, a guy named Bill Corson. And, uh, man, this was just a great dude, had, had a massive impact on my life. And uh, we got to talking about all of our old friends and again, you have to understand, we're talking about my friends from that era. These were kids that were just absolutely faithfully committed and involved in serving the church. I mean, they invested in all these different ministries. They attended all the camps. They attended all the concerts, right? They, they wore the God Rules and the Rebel for Jesus t-shirts because it was the 1980s. And I want to apologize for that, but like, I didn't invent any of those things. And, and again, they, they would walk down the aisle countless times at the weekly altar calls that our church had. And so I'm talking to Bill, and it was both encouraging and it was both discouraging. It was encouraging that this brother was keeping in touch with all of us 90 years later, right? Um, it was discouraging, on the other hand, um, because I learned that, that the, the vast majority of my friends, again, who could have been mistaken for the cast from The Breakfast Club, uh, were not walking with Jesus, um, they had no interest in, in Christ, and they really just wrote off that time in their lives that we'd spent together as, you know, teenage church stuff that they were involved in. And so my question for us as we're beginning today is what do we do with that? What do we do with that, right? Does that describe anybody that, that you know? Uh, it would be crazy if you couldn't recall somebody in, in your life that has that same story. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one who actually has that story in your life. And what that brings up is it brings up a lot of confusion when we, when we read a parable like this, when we hear stories like this, it brings up a lot of confusion because it poses this question, which is, were these people true followers of Christ at the end of the day? Um, because, you know, after all, like I said, and I knew every one of these, these brothers and sisters, they certainly professed faith at some point. And so one of the things we want to ask is, is that enough? Is it, is it enough to merely profess faith? Is it enough to say, like, I believe? Right? Is it, is it enough to profess? R.C. Sproul, who is one of, one of the great theologians and, and, and writers of our day, um, and a solid dude, said this. He said, we must possess the faith we profess if we are to be justified 
So it's not just about professing, it's about possessing the faith. It's about having a faith of which produces something inside of us, right? And what this means for us today, for our larger point when we dive into this parable, is that when the redemptive work of Jesus is revealed to the ears of those God has opened, they will receive it in and they will live it out, right? Because the outcome of real faith, as we're going to see here, is real fruit, which is what we just heard Jesus lay out in the, in the parable of the sower. Now, typically, we don't speak to each other in, in, in parables these days. Like, when you come to talk to me, I'm just going to say, hey, what's up? You know, I'm not going to try to make some large point by laying out a parable to you. But this is how Jesus spoke. This was his mode of communication when he would uh, gather a large gathering around and start preaching to them. And really, a parable is just this. It's a, it's a story to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson, and they usually just have one point. So when Jesus is preaching through the parables, we don't want to look for all these esoteric points. We don't try to want to read our entire lives into these parables. He's really just trying to make one point. He's trying to drive one particular thing home. And again, they were, they were the method that Jesus uh, specifically used to describe things, to describe something about his coming, to describe the new life of righteousness that God grants to those who now belong to his kingdom. So the parable Scott just read is unique in one sense um, because Jesus actually gives the interpretation of it uh, to his disciples. So like he, we, we read about the parable there in verses 1 through 9 and then he, he gets together with the disciples and he, he explains like, like what the parable means. You're like, why are we gathering? Like he just said it, we just read it. Why don't you just pray and like we're done, we can go eat. Well, because I, because I, I, I have to preach right now. I, this is what I get paid to do, so we have to break this stuff down, right? Um, but what's interesting is he gives the interpretation of it to his disciples in verse 14. But before we get into that, and we're going to step through that, I, I want to ask this question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? I mean, why did he speak in parables at all? Well, if we go to verse 11 through 12, we get our answer because he says this, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And you read that and you go, what? Like, like, isn't that the point? Isn't that why he's speaking in parables? So that people could understand why he came and that the kingdom of God was at hand? Isn't that just sort of the normal thing for us to ask? Well, well I think it is. But here's the answer is that Jesus spoke in parables to reveal the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel, which was, again, the coming of God's kingdom through Jesus to those whose hearts had been changed by God to receive and believe it. So for those that God made receptive to his word, it was something that was a mystery that became uh, an illuminating truth. And in verse 12, again, like we just read, he quotes from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And what he's trying to do there is he's trying to indicate that there is this parallel going on between himself and, for instance, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where we read that from, and that God's word is veiled to those whose ears have not been opened. Just like in the old days when the prophets used to come and they used to preach the word. And the majority of the time, especially when we're talking about brothers like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the people didn't have ears to hear what they were saying. Their hearts were, the, the word was veiled to their hearts. And so in a similar way, Jesus coming to earth is speaking in parables to people whose ears have not been opened by the Spirit to understand and receive it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
is what Paul says. They're folly to him. They're crazy to him. They're fairy tales to him. They're Disney cartoons. They're Marvel comic strips to him. And he says, and he is not able to understand them. Why? Well, Paul says, because they are spiritually discerned. So there's something that has to change in us. There's something that has to change in our hearts so that we are able to receive and discern what it is that God is saying. So for people given spiritual discernment and understanding like the disciples in verse 11, man, they were going to see something really interesting when Jesus comes onto the scene. They were going to see Jesus coming, like he points out in this parable, like a fragile seed right? Like a blossoming seed, like a growing seed in weakness and humility to defeat the kingdom of darkness and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So parables were spoken by Jesus to illuminate the gospel, the unfolding of his kingdom mission to those whose hearts were illuminated by God's truth so that they could be spiritually discerning, so that it wouldn't be veiled to them so that they could understand it. So when you go to verse 3 there, Jesus opens up, right? So he's Got the disciples, these fishermen, he gets in the boat, they pushed out the boat, the boat becomes his stage. He sits there, the people gather around the shore, they want to hear what he has to say. And he opens by saying, listen. He just says, listen. And the original meaning of this word wasn't just listen, it wasn't just saying, hey, hey, I'm getting ready to speak, listen. But it actually means, I want you to hyper listen. I want you to really Listen, I want you to, in, to listen, not just to hear, but to listen intently and listen with urgency and pour everything that you have in your mind and heart into the words that I'm about to speak. You know, there's that moment that every parent has with their child when they say, you're listening, but you're not hearing me, right? Only like everybody in the room with kids has ever like said that, right? In effect, what you're saying is you're hearing me audibly, but not with your actions, like, I, I know, like, like the, I, I get it, like, the ear canal is working, like, you're hearing my voice right now, but, like, you're still sitting, like, like, video games are still being played, and I just told you to go clean your room. So you're hearing, but you're not listening. You're hearing me audibly, but not with your actions. So we see in verse 3, the sower sows the seed. And it says the seed, essentially, it runs all over, right? So our first thought might be, man, is this the worst sower of all time, Right? I mean, why is he so careless with his sowing, right? I mean, how bad of an aim do you have to be to mitch so much of the soil that will actually produce something? I mean, again, does this somehow mean that the sower here that Jesus is speaking about somehow lacks skill and efficiency? Well, not if we understand that the sower here that Jesus is talking about is actually God. And we get some insight into a little first century farming, okay, which is simply this, right? I didn't, I didn't do a master class on, on, on first century farming and fruit planting, right? But the farmers of that day, what would happen is they would scatter seed before they plowed, right? So the seed would end up falling in, in a variety of different places, some of which would, which would never produce anything, never produce any fruit, never produce any grain. But the, but the bottom line was that the seed went out and then the ground was actually plowed. And so what Jesus does is he, pour, he, he points out these four different kinds of soils that the seed, that the sower uh, scattered his seed on the ground. And then he sort of lays out in four different ways the effect that the seed had with the soil that it fell on. He says in verse 4 and verse 15, there are parallels here. We get one, in, in four we, 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 get, uh, we get the sower sowing the seed. And then in 15 we get the explanation. So the seed falls on the path in verse 4. And it said where there is no soil. 
And then it said the birds devour it. And what Jesus says is he likens this in verse 15 to those who hear the word. But Satan is waiting in the wings, he says, to interfere and to stop the progress of that word coming through. Now remember, when we talk about Satan, we always have to remember this. Satan can only do what the Lord allows. We saw that in the book of Job. Satan is on a leash, so to say. Only what God allows Satan to do does he have any power to do anything. But, but we see this often, right, what I'm talking about here, what the, what, uh, what, what, the, uh, what the parable leads us into here with the seed being sown on the path. People who are exposed to the truth of the gospel. But it goes in one ear and it goes out the other. They're, they're drawn away very quickly. And, you know, a good example of this are people who maybe have been in churches for for years, uh, maybe have heard the gospel, maybe have read books, maybe have even attended Bible studies and been to conferences, listened to podcasts. These are people, brothers and sisters, that have been evangelized, right? They've heard the word, but none of these uh, efforts, none of these efforts have had a repentant and regenerate connection with their heart, right? I mean, we know what this is like on a far lesser level, don't we? I mean, how many times have you ever, like, read something or attended a meeting or listened to a sermon? Um, and it was, like, it was like, dude, you were never there. I mean, you walk out and there was, like, zero recall, right? I mean, you're just, like, shut down the whole time you're listening because your ears were turned off. You were disengaged. You had no interest. There was no receptivity, right? We've all had those moments we've been engaged in something and we walk away and, like, I have no recollection of what just happened or what was said. It's completely gone for me. Um, my grandpa, who actually passed away a few years ago, he was, he was one of these men. Uh, ironically enough, after retirement, he, he became this kind of this avid gardener who planted and tended fruit trees, ironically enough, for, for our purposes tonight. But this was a man who was confronted with the gospel so many times over the years. And he just dismissed it whenever it was shared with him. The seed of the gospel was quickly snatched away from the receptiveness of his mind and heart. So, again, this is somebody for whom God was never good. God never became good. God was not good. We say God is good. Well, this was somebody for whom God was never good because the seed was never planted. Nothing ever grew. There was no soil there at all. And then we get to verse 5 and 6 and then find its counterpart in verses 16 and 17. And we see the seed falling on rocky ground in verse 5. Now, when you talk about rocky ground, there's actually some soil, he says, on this rocky ground. You know, in the midst, in between all of the rocks. But, but it's not very deep. So there's soil, but it's not very deep. Because when the blade actually springs up, it says it becomes scorched by the sun. And it withers because it... It just never became rooted. And Jesus compares this in verses 16 with those who receive the word, he says. And there's some initial joy. In other words, they're super pumped. They get really excited. It was like a thing that they experienced, right? Um, but nothing ever takes root. And this could be like someone who has, you know, maybe that moment with a friend who, who you know, who, who shares the gospel with them. Or maybe it's a moment at a, at a youth camp or a men's retreat or maybe a, a Christian concert like we talked about earlier, when emotions are running high, right? Emotions are running high and they, maybe they went forward after somebody gave an Im invitation. But, man, when, when, when real life starts to hit, when, when pain and hardships arise, what happens is they, they fade away. They end up fading away because they never really were rooted in Christ. They may have gotten caught up in the excitement of a Christian event or a Christian experience 
um, but nothing was ever rooted. You know, I, I actually, I worry so much about this one. I worry so much about this one. When the challenges of life, when they just, when they dim the light of Christ that, is, that's been, that someone's been exposed to. Instead of God being this hopeful presence, when pain and trials and suffering comes, he becomes sort of this non-existent person. You know, I remember an old friend of mine who had had that story, he had that initial spark, right? He had that, he had that spark of interest, so to speak, in Christ. He even, made a, he even made a profession of faith. We were at a men's retreat together years and years ago. And he made this big profession of faith. And it was this big emotional thing. You know, and you got the bonfire, right? And everybody's singing, you know, come just as you are. You know, whatever it was back then. And, um, and then, you know, not, not, not much later, you know, life just started kicking him down. You know, uh, you know this was somebody who had a lot of marital issues, uh, battling with some addictions, some abuses from the past. Um, and all of this just became unmanageable for him. Following Christ was not a viable option for him. He never believed or received the true comfort of God's word and the community of God's people to surround him and to walk through these things with him. So this is somebody for whom God is only good when life is good, right? So the first one is somebody for whom God was never good. This is somebody for whom God is only good if life is working out, if life is good, if everything is square, if he feels like he's being treated right and things are smoothed out for him. Then we get to verse 7 and it says the seed falls in with the thorns in verse 7. And here we find a good amount of soil, right? Because the thorns are able to grow right alongside, up alongside the grain. But the problem is that the grain gets choked out from the thorns. So the soil is deep enough for both things to grow up equally, but the thorns prove to be stronger than the grain. They choke out the grain, um, and Jesus compares this in verse 18, if you look down on 18, with the person who hears the word. But their attachment to the things of the world is so strong. It's so strong that a real faith is never established. And the proof is that no growth comes as the result. I, I can think of a, of a family member of mine who this applies to. Uh, the word was heard, clearly heard. Uh, and for a while, it, it seemed as if some rootedness in growth had taken place, but they had this just this insatiable desire and pursuit of of uh, material things and financial success, and it became so overwhelming. It, it was so deceptive. It was such a heaviness in their life that it choked out that initial experience they'd had with Christianity. Right. So this is somebody for whom God might be good, but He's not greater. He might be good, but He's not greater than material. Comforts and pursuits and consumptions, right? So we see, these, we see these three sort of like varying degrees of soil that the sower scatters his seed to. And none of them really produce anything until we get to the good soil in verse 8 and 20. I'm going to read verse 20 and it says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundred Fold. You know what's in interesting about when he gets into the 30, 1600 fold is back then a good crop was considered one that only yielded a tenfold increase. If you got a tenfold increase, like, like you were successful, things were going right, there was a lot of rain, right? Like the soil was, was awesome. You were producing a lot. And what we see here is that seed sown in good soil produces well beyond that in the economy 
of God, yielding 30, 60, and 100-fold increase. And the point here, and what we want to lock into here, is that God's seed, or God's word, which is what he means when he says seed, is never wasted. It's never wasted because God sovereignly sows it exactly where he wants it. So there's always a yield, because again, we know from Isaiah 55, when it says, his word never returns void, that everywhere, everywhere that God intends a yield is the yield he receives every single time. So when, by the time Jesus gets to this place with the good soil, we, we actually get a, a clearer picture of what he's driving at here. And so what I want to do is just chat for a minute about this good soil. I want to talk for a minute about what makes good soil. Is, is it our... Is it our goodness? Is it our goodness that makes good soil? Is it because God planted his word into people who already had the hearts to produce fruitful lives? Does he just look at you and go, dude, the soil is looking prime. So I'm going to plant my word there because I can be almost sure that it's going to grow there. No, actually, soil is good because God the sower plows and he prepares the soil to receive the seed of his word. I mean, the soil, the soil has no power to do anything but receive the seed. And this is an important point for us to wrestle with. In John 3, 3, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless, now take note of that word, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So until God does that plowing, tilling work, we can't see the kingdom of God. In John 6, it says, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless, there's that word again, Unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's this thing about God doing the work, the tilling, the tending of our hearts before we're able to look at him and say, oh, there you are. I didn't see before. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ because we've been saved by grace. So there's nothing in the soil itself that made it good for producing God is responsible for tilling the soil that he creates. He's the divine gardener, isn't he, of our souls. Now, man, these, uh, these, can, be, these can be scary verses. My wife told me I, I always tried to avoid this parable growing up. Like I was always panicked. I didn't like this parable. It always made me feel like, am I the, am I the thorny you know, soil? You know, am I the rocky soil? Um, and so these can be kind of scary verses. They bring up some scary implications, right, when we start thinking about whether one is, is truly saved, right? So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we determine the state of a person's heart? Can we determine that? Is it possible for us to determine the state, the fate of a person's heart? Well, no, that, that's actually the purview of God. But what we can do is we can look for evidence of fruit, and, and but, I don't know if it's and or but, let me throw both of those out there, use which one you want. Because of our own sinfulness, right? Because of some of the, own, because of some of the soil in us that's a little hard, um, we need to be slow, we need to be gracious, we need to be merciful, and we need to be discerning. And we're sort of starting to, to wade out into these waters, right? Because this brings up that old line of defense that people use when they say, hey, brother, don't judge me. Who are you to judge don't, I had somebody say that to me the other day. Don't judge me. And I said, well, I, I can't judge you. You're, you're actually right. No, nobody should judge you. Um, we're not in the position to judge anyone because God alone is the righteous judge. 
God alone knows the hearts of men and women. But we are told to judge the fruit of a person. And it's a gracious and it's a loving thing for us to do. Uh, on the Sermon of the Mountain, Matthew 7, Jesus warns us. He's talking about false prophets here. But, the, but the, the principle is still true. It applies to everybody. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Don't you just love that Jesus doesn't mince words? You know? In an era where everybody's trying to talk around everything, just read the Sermon on the Mount, right? You will, he says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. He said, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Right? It's just logic, right? A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, this is Jesus talking, is cut down and thrown into the fire. What the heck? Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, he says. So without making judgments, we can be discerning about a person's fruit because of the spirit who produces fruit and discernment inside of us. It's that spirit. And the reason is so we don't mistakenly come to conclusions about a person's salvation, but continue to, to pray for them, to minister to them, to extend grace to them and not write them off as saved if they're on a pathway to destruction. Do you guys get that? Do you guys get how damaging it is to look at somebody that's clearly on a pathway to destruction and go, you know, they're cool. I mean, they're, they're, so, they're nice guys. He's a good guy. He's a good guy on a pathway to destruction. What? We want to extend grace to people and not write them off as saved if they're on a pathway to destruction. Or, or unsaved if they're just in a valley. If they're just in a valley. We need to be careful. We need to be slow. We need to be cautious. We need to be discerning because there's no love or grace in either of those extremes. That's not what Jesus is preaching to us through this parable. Here's something else I wanted to hit while we're on it, okay? What about this myth of what's called commonly in Christian circles the carnal Christian? How many of you guys have heard of that? The carnal Christian, like four of you. I like that. Um, what, this means, what this means is somebody, somebody who's considered saved, but there's no evidence of real fruit in their life. So somebody would say, well, they're just a Christian that lives like the world. Well, the problem is, is that that's, that's a myth, right? It's like Bigfoot, right? It's someone got a photo of something that's not real, right? I mean, if you guys want to talk about the myth of Bigfoot afterwards and, you know, you got your conspiracies and you think he's a real person, I mean, do we can do that afterwards, right? For our intent and purpose right now, the dude in that costume is not real, right? Bigfoot, okay? Um, so here's, what I wanna, here's where I want to go with this. Do Christians sin? And do we sin grievously sometimes? Like you ever heard of, the, of King David? There's a brother who sinned. He not only sinned, but he sinned, sinned, right? Do Christians sin? Yeah. Do Christians fight their sin? Hex, yes, right? They fight it rigorously. But here's the thing. A Christian who fights their sin, they're going to see progress in that fight. They're going to see progress in the fight. A Christian without fruit is an oxymoron, right? It's like an ocean without water. It doesn't exist. Because walking with Jesus looks like something. Walking with Jesus, it looks like something. It looks like someone, actually. It looks like Jesus. 
So what are some of the implications then of, of being a fruit bearer? What are some of the marks of being a fruit bearer? Well, Jesus lays it out really simply. Some of the marks of being a fruit bearer, number one is you heard the word and you accepted it. You heard the word and you accepted it. There was a time when you heard the word. And the love of Jesus was shared with you, but you didn't accept it. And it wasn't that you didn't accept it as much as you didn't accept him as plausible or truthful. Which is the same as not hearing the truth at all. If you don't receive it and believe it. But then we read in Ephesians 2 where it says this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. We have been saved. So here's an example. When I have my Apple earbuds in, okay, when I have my earbuds in, and Melissa, my wife, right here in the front, is talking to me from the other room in the house, here's the thing. I don't even know to remove them until she comes and pulls them violently from my ears. Don't judge. She's gentle, right? That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. You don't have ears to hear or a heart to accept God until God's grace changes your heart to hear and receive it. Until God comes in and removes those buds and you go, wait, I didn't even know I wasn't hearing anything. How did I know that? Well, because you have those apple buds in your ear. That's not what he's saying to you literally. You guys get my point with that. So one of the marks of being a fruit bearer is you heard the word and you accepted it. Very simply. Secondly, you bear the fruit that comes from living it. You bear the fruit that comes from living out the non-voided, totally effectual word that is now living and growing and breathing in your heart. So last year I received a gift card to Target for my birthday. I was stoked, like all of you would be, because Target is the greatest store in the world. All right? So here's what happens. I'm pumped, right? It wasn't a, lot, it wasn't a ton of money, right? But I, but I get to the register with an arm full of just beautiful bountiful target purchases. I swiped my gift card. I'm just stoked. And there's nothing on the card. I was like, no! You know, it was like one of those moments, right? So I, I tried it again. And like 86 times later, swiping the card, I kept trying. I kept trying. No matter how many times I swiped that card, no money on that card. And of course, the person that gave it to me, our friendship isn't isn't like real healthy right now either after that. Um, I'm telling you, man, it looked like a Target card. I, I, I swear, there was like the little red bullseye on it and everything, but it produced nothing. I literally had to like walk back down the aisles, you know, putting my stuff back. You know, I'm like, oh, man, it was such a great Saturday at one point. <laughs> a true follower of Christ bears fruit of the Christ they follow. You guys get when I say that? You guys hearing me with that? Ephesians 2, Paul says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. Not arbitrary good works, but which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So we bear the fruit that comes from living it. That's one of the marks. And the last mark of being a fruit bearer is that you, you give God the glory for sowing it. For sowing the word in your life. I remember one time, uh, back in the day, I, I was in the music industry, and I, I wrote a lot of songs, and it sounds a lot more important than it is. Um, but I remember one time I lied to someone about a song I had written that wasn't my song. All right? 
Um, I loved this song so much that I wanted to receive the glory for writing it. And I knew that this person I was like showing the song to, they weren't any wiser for it. So that is your pastor, right? Right there. Um, but one of the marks of being a fruit bearer is that we are happy to give God the glory for being the sower. Why? Well, because the sower is the love and the hope of our hearts. Again, Paul, moving on to Ephesians 3, he says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. You see, you see Paul's heart towards God. He wants, to, he wants to brag on God. Now to him who is able to do abundantly all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So the marks of being a fruit bearer is you heard the word and accepted it. You bear the fruit that comes from living it and you give the God the glory for sowing it. God sows the seed he wants sown. Listen, okay. God sows the seed he wants sown. God plows the soil he wants plowed. And God produces the fruit he wants produced. Right? And here's the thing. It's heartbreaking picturing the stories of those in our lives whose hearts fall into those rocky and thorny categories, isn't it? But that's why, that's why, listen, that's why it's the parable of who? The sower. It's the parable of the sower. Because at one time, everyone's heart contained rocky and thorny soil until the sower transformed it into soil that was able to receive God's good seed. So although it's important to inspect another's fruit, sorry, I'm not trying to be clever, right? What's more important is letting the fruit of our lives who have been changed who now have the good soil of the word growing in us, what's important is that the fruit of our life be kindness. Because of what we just sang a few minutes ago. Because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, not God's fruit inspectors. Right? The fruit of the Spirit in your life should extend, it should be an extension to those who have those rocky and thorny hearts. Because walking with Jesus means walking with those who don't yet have a walk with Jesus. That's what it means. Maybe you have a rocky and thorny heart. Maybe you're not thinking about your friend. Maybe this is you. Maybe you are the one with the rocky and thorny heart. And if that's concerning to you, awesome. Because it might be that God is tilling that soil. God is tilling the soil of your heart, creating a broken heart for you to repent and receive the truth of his word, who is Jesus Christ. And you might be a brother or sister who did that years ago. Or did it a month ago? You were in some Christian experience kind of situation, right? Whether it's a camp or a church, and you were like, yeah, I'm pumped up. But you don't feel like it took any root in you. That's a good thing to come to a very, very true knowledge of. Because it may be that God is tilling that soil right now. Because the good fruit of God's word is simply this. It's Jesus being alive in your life. That's what it means. What Jesus is saying here is that God's word never fails to regenerate the unregenerate he chooses to regenerate. I'm getting all Dr. Seuss on you right now. I'm going to say that again, all right? God's word never fails to regenerate the unregenerate he chooses to regenerate, right? The mystery of the parable, because Jesus talks about the mystery. There's a mystery here. When he sat down with the disciples, he said, to you I'm revealing the secret, the mystery. The mystery of the parable is this. Jesus will not remain hidden to those he redeems. But, and here's the great news, 
the redeemed will become hidden in him. Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is massively good news for those of you who have carried a load of failed evangelisms on your shoulders, isn't it? Right? You know who Jesus never mentions in this parable? You know who's never mentioned in the parable? The field workers. They're never mentioned. It's all about the sower and the seed of the sower. What does this say to us about God? It says that salvation belongs to him. And you know what that means for us, what the implications for us are when we know that there are people in our lives of whom we have said, here is the gospel and there's been zero change? You know what that says to us is we can walk with them. We can walk with them. We can be gracious with them. We can be gracious with our neighbors. We can be patient with our family members. We can walk with those crushed under the weight of tribulations and trials and the cares of this world because the sower ain't us. It's God. The gospel is his seed. The fruit is his growth. And like it says in John, without him, we can do nothing. Praise God. Praise God for the mystery of this gospel that God in his goodness will reveal to us and to others through us. Because good fruit comes from God's word when it's planted in those God prepares. He does all the work. He does all the work. And he calls us, he calls us to be people who will simply be faithful and proclaim the goodness that he has placed in our lives. That's the seed of God's word that he uses through us to other people that he then uses the work to change them with. So we can rest and we can be joyful, we can be prayerful. Because God is the sower. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth. When we read through your word, when we read through the parables, we are reading truth. Lord, I pray for anybody out there of which this feels like a mystery and this feels complicated, Lord. And this feels unbelievable, Lord, that you in this moment would till that soil, Lord, and that you would open their eyes, you would open their hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would humble us as we consider the people in our lives who you put in place, the people in our neighborhoods and our communities that you have sovereignly put in place for us to share the truth of the gospel. Lord, let us continue to trust you to do the work as we are faithful to proclaim that work. Lord, thank you that we have such a great hope of salvation because salvation is yours and yours alone and we can rest in that. So Lord, give us rest, but also give us a godly concern and a godly urgency to want to walk alongside of those who don't yet know you and to those who are struggling, Lord, with the assurance of that truth in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would use us in those ways to continue to speak Christ, and to continue to speak of the hope of the glory that is contained in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.